It's also my privilege this morning to introduce our, our guest speaker. He's not much of a guest. He's one of our members here. He's also an elder here. He's one of my dearest friends, Steve Harris, Dr. Steve Harris, but we can call him Steve. That's kind of the way it goes. Uh, Steve is no stranger to many of you here, uh, and certainly not to me. Steve, 21 years ago, took a merry little band of about 10 couples, and we planted New Life Community Church and lived the life as gypsies for about 10 years, meeting in different places throughout the community. It was a rich and, uh, and trying experience in many ways, but a very rewarding one. And just to think that we're at this point today through much of the ministry of Steve Harris and Chris and, uh, and you as well, uh, being such a strong bond in a relational church. We're grateful for that. Steve stepped aside about four years ago uh, to become the strategy coordinator for the North Carolina Baptist Convention. The division that he works in is, is Western North Carolina area, the Western North Carolina region. So he's well-traveled. He's well-loved. Steve is just such a disarming, wonderful, enjoyable guy. Steve, come preach to us this morning and give us your word. Thank you. Well, good morning. In the passage of Scripture that we're going to study this morning, the Apostle Paul says some very, very personal and intimate things to the Galatians because he loved them so deeply. And there are a few personal thoughts that I wanted to share with you before we get into the Scripture, namely how grateful I am to be able to be a part of this family of faith. It means so much to me. Um, you know, it's, it shouldn't be, but I guess it's rare for a pastor to be able to come back to the church that he has pastored and actually be a member of it. I think that, um, you know, in many churches there's all kinds of weird things <laughs> that happen between the former pastor and his successor, and, and I think most of that comes really out of insecurity, and it shouldn't be that way, but it is, and um, it just speaks a lot. It really speaks volumes to Pastor Chris and his security in Christ and, um, and the relationship of trust that we have with each other, that he would invite me to come back and be a part of this fellowship and to uh, even serve in leadership. And so I'm just so thrilled and grateful just to be able to be here. I get to worship with my buddy Roger Queen back there. We hiked the Appalachian Trail together in our young 20s. Uh, our legs were a lot younger then, weren't they, Roger? <laughs> um, but it's just what a, what a blessing this is to me, and I'm just so grateful uh, to be a part of this, and, and in turn, I really uh, just am blown away by the ministry that Chris has had since he's been here. Um, he, every week, I sit back there, and my mouth is just hanging open at the incredible insight and wisdom that he has into the Word of God as we're going through Galatians. He, he assigned me this passage of Scripture today to continue that study, and I'm grateful to be able to share it, but um, I'm also grateful for his trust, and so I want to just tell you this. Don't mess with my pastor, okay? <laughs> Amen? <clears throat> now, during the first century after Christ, the early church was being established, and there was a group of Christ followers who lived in a region called Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. <clears throat> Some of those Christ followers were Jewish believers, and they wanted to follow Christ, but they didn't want to give up their old Jewish system 
of rules and regulations. Now, not only did they try to blend together these two uh, systems of grace and legalism, but then they began reaching out to Gentile believers, and they were pulling them into this system of a mix between trusting Jesus and trying to live by the law. Well, the Apostle Paul had come out of that uh, system as a, one of their highest level leaders, and uh, he had led many of these Gentile believers to Christ. And so when he heard about this, uh, he wrote a letter to the Galatians to warn them about the danger of joining in with these Judaizers, as he was calling them, back to the purity and the simplicity of just trusting Christ alone. Because uh, when you trust in anything else for your acceptance before God, that, that's heresy. Uh, we can't add anything to the work that Christ did for us uh, in His death and resurrection. And uh, we don't need to even try to do that. So today, as followers of Christ, there is a diabolical force that still pulls us back into our own brand of legalism. Legalism, which in its simplest form is just performance-based acceptance. But it leads us to the life of bondage and slavery. But grace leads us to the greatest liberation and freedom that anyone can experience. One of the best ways to understand something is to compare it and to contrast it with the opposite. And that's what Paul does in this passage today as we look at, a, at the greatest contrast in the world. The contrast between legalism and grace. And I feel like that I'm just barely touching the surface. And I think one of the most th things that we need the most is to be able to identify our own brand of legalism and what it means for us to walk in grace. And so I would like to encourage you to study this uh, further. One of our elders, um, Rich Miller, is the president of Freedom in Christ Ministry. Freedom in Christ, that's what this ministry is all about. And Rich has written a book uh, on grace, uh, Breaking the Chains of Legalism. And I would encourage you to purchase that book if you just go to FICM, Freedom in Christ Ministries, FICM.org. You can order that book and really dig into this in, your, uh, in order to really fully experience this yourself. <clears throat> but today in our ongoing study of Galatians, we're going to see this great contrast between legalism and grace. So we pick up in Galatians 4 verse 8. Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved by, to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. <clears throat> now, first of all, we see a contrast between knowing and not knowing God. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved by those things that by nature were not God's. The essence of what it is like for us to not know God is all about what you're worshiping. Now we need to understand worship is built into every person's being. All of us are very, very good worshipers. It's just a question of who or what we are worshiping. When you look to something else 
to give you fulfillment and happiness and joy to meet your deepest needs that were intended to be met by God Himself, then that thing is what you are worshiping. And you know, that in itself is the essence of idolatry. An idol is not a totem pole that you set up in your backyard. An idol is whatever you're looking to in the hopes that it will give you the fulfillment and happiness and joy that you so desperately need. So let me ask you a question. What would you rather be doing than sitting right here worshiping God right now? It's possible that whatever that is could be your God or your idol. So what are those things that Paul says by nature are not gods that we look to? Well, the Bible calls it the world system. The world is defined very clearly in 1 John. It says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now notice it says all that is in the world. If you look at this this list of three things here, uh, every sin you commit could come under one of those three headings. The desires of the flesh is sensuality. It's anything that appeals to the five senses of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. God gave us our five senses to experience and enjoy life with. All of them are good. But then when we start catering to them in excess... And living for the pleasures of sensuality outside of the guardrails that God has set for them, then we start worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. And the problem with sensuality is that it leads to an addiction that can never be satisfied until you do it more and more and more, and then it finally destroys your life and it can ultimately kill you. Now, that can be mind altering substances, it can be a sexual addiction. It can be living to eat rather than eating to live. You know, one of my greatest comfort foods is a bag of Frito corn chips and onion dip. <laughs> it can be music that glorifies Satan and his world system rather than music that glorifies God. It can be an addiction to video games. Dr. Kenneth Cooper, many years ago, he wrote the best-selling book, Aerobics, a guide to health and fitness, um, and it was through the discipline of good habits and exercise and diet. And I heard Dr. Cooper's wife, who was sharing this crusade with him to help people get healthy through the discipline of good, good health habits. And she was speaking in seminary in chapel one day. And she told a story. She said, I was driving down the road one day, and I, and I came up to a stoplight, and I came up behind this car, and there was a bumper sticker on the back of the car. And it said, if it feels good, do it. She said, I just wanted to back up and just ram right into the back of that car. <laughs> and then get out and say, I don't know, mister, it just felt good. <laughs> if it feels good, do it. That's sensuality. Then the desire of the eyes, materialism. I see it and I want it for myself. It's retail therapy. Another name for shopping, and yes, men like that as much as women. You know, the, the saying, the only difference between men and boys is what? The price of their toys. It's a false belief that I can surround myself with expensive 
clothes and the latest technological equipment and, and late model cars and houses and extra houses and investment portfolios and all kinds of luxury items and believe that these things will really satisfy me and they'll make me look good and look successful and people will respect and admire me. Well, the problem with materialism is that it only satisfies until the new car smell wears off. And then you need something else. So answer this question. How much money is enough? Just a little bit more. We need to remember that the one who dies with the most toys is still dead. <laughs> the pride of life, self-worship. It comes from selfishness and feeling superior to others, from achievement, from accolades, from knowing uh, that others admire me, from looking good, from being richer, smarter, faster, stronger. Pride can only come by comparison. And the problem with that is when you compare yourself to someone else, you always end up losing. Every time. Because if you think you're better than them, then you're going to be filled with pride and judgmentalism. And if you think they're better than you, then you're going to be depressed and you're going to be filled with bitterness and resentment. You never can lose when you live to compare yourself to others. And have you noticed that someone else is always faster? Someone else is always just a little bit stronger, a little bit sharper, a little bit smarter, a little bit richer, a little bit prettier, a little bit more handsome. And all these things are just cheap substitutes for knowing and being known by God, which is what we were really created for. God created us to know Him, to be known by Him, and then once we have that foundation, all of this other stuff can just flow out of a free life of love. That's what God created us for. And notice what it says in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Now what Paul is doing is he is now appealing to the glory of the greatest experience anyone can have on this earth. It is the experience of knowing God and even better being known by God. You know it's even more important to be known by God than it is to know God. Jesus said that, you know, he said, many people are going to come to me at the judgment and they're, they're going to say, well, Lord, did we not do all of these wonderful works in your name? And he said, I'm going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. So what's going to be the most important thing at the judgment? To be known by God. I heard about a teenage girl who received Christ and she was just overflowed with joy. And she was praying with the lady that led her to Christ, just thanking God for her salvation. And in the midst of her prayer, she said, Jesus, thank you for letting me come into your heart. And the, the lady that was praying with her started to stop her and correct her and say, no, you need to thank Jesus for coming into your heart. And then the Lord just stopped her and said, nope, she got it right. Thank you, Jesus, for letting me come into your heart for, for me knowing you, but for you knowing me. That's so important. But knowing God and being known by God, that's what brings ultimate joy. When we become God chasers, then, then everything else work, is in the right perspective. He gives us, God gives us all good things to enjoy, 
We can enjoy our five senses with the bounds that He has set. We can enjoy the material blessings that He's blessed us with. We can work hard and seek to accomplish all we can accomplish to the glory of God, but it all flows out of a relationship with Him. Do you know that Scripture defines the essence of eternal life? And it does not define it in terms of just the trappings of heaven. I get to go to a place. That's not even the essence of eternal life. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17.3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you haven't experienced the joy of knowing God and being known by Him, then you've missed out on the best thing that life has to offer. That's why it's so important that we voluntarily enter into the discipline of daily time alone with God. In prayer, in Bible reading, you need a time, a place, and a plan. Not to earn brownie points with God, but to to get to know Him, for Him to know you, to share your heart with Him. And then your involvement in the body of Christ. This is so important part of us knowing God and being known by Him as a part of the family of faith because we experience so much. Most of what we experience in the Christian life, we experience, we do it better together. And that's why it's so important for us to be involved and let that be a foundation for our life that everything flows out of. So our takeaway to this first great contrast between knowing and not going, knowing God comes in the form of a question, and it's this. What if there was an experience that you could have with God that would give you the deepest fulfillment of knowing God and being known by God? If you're finding that other things are simply more important to you than knowing God and being known by Him, then I encourage you, turn away from depending on those things for your fulfillment and joy, and look to your relationship with God and spending time alone with Him and fellowship with other believers, then the discipline will become a delight. I can't tell you how many times I have dragged my weary bones up to the church for a meeting that I did not feel like going to. And that was when I was a pastor. (laughs) But I was amazed at how God filled me up in the midst of that meeting and how full I was as I drove away to go back home over and over and over again. Look at verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. Now he's talking about the Judaizers here. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Here we see a second contrast. It's a contrast between a true friend and an enemy. 
Paul brought them a message of grace and truth because he loved them. But the Judaizers brought them a message of legalism because they wanted to use them. What we see here is that the person who ministers grace and truth to you is a real friend. But the one who puts you under a legalistic load of performance-based acceptance is an enemy. Now look at how Paul ministered to the Galatians in contrast to how the Judaizers tried to manipulate them. Paul's talking in terms of the tenderness of a loving relationship here. And because of a physical weakness, he was received with great compassion by the Galatians. Look at verse 14. He says, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. They had an experience of such deep bond of love with Paul bringing them the glory of this gospel of grace, and they accepted it, and they received him in the most sacrificial, loving way possible. But something had now changed in their relationship. The Galatians were being wooed by some people who did not have their best interest at heart. They were even their enemies. And so in verse 16, he says, Have I then become your enemy? By telling you the truth, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So now Paul tells them how dangerous these Judaizers were. So what was happening is the Judaizers were doing what a lot of cults do today. It's called love bombing. They overwhelm a prospective member with attention and support and affection. And yet it really isn't a sincere love. For the prospect, it's just really a technique to gain another member. And then he said in verse 17, they want to shut you out that you may make much of them. So what this was, it was a bait and a switch. Lure them in with love bombing. Isolate them from their true Christian friends. Then once you get them in, you impose a system of rules and regulations that will allow you to control them and you'll always make them feel inferior to you because they'll never have the Jewish credentials and status that you, that you have. So, in application to that, here's my question. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to follow the leadership of people who are people of grace? They're going to love you unconditionally. They're going to bring to you constantly the gospel of, of grace to you. The gospel that says that God, yes, He has given us creative purposes and principles to live by. But we know that we all fall short of the glory of God. And then they're going to continue to teach you to come back to the cross. Over and over again. Come back to the cross. And as we come back to the cross... We receive fresh forgiveness. The guilt is taken away. The shame is taken away. The inner healing comes and we're restored. And then once we come back to the cross, they're going to send you to the resurrection. The power of the resurrection that Jesus received a new life. And now He gives us a new life. And that new life is the Spirit of Christ in us. And that Spirit of Christ gives us the presence and the power of the God of the universe inside of us. And we now do not have to live a life for God. Jesus will live His life in us and through us. That's the gospel of grace that people will bring you if you'll follow the right people. Or, are you going to follow people 
who are going to lure you in in order to put you under the bondage of their rules and regulations and then constantly remind you that you'll never quite measure up. It could be your boss at work, your spouse, your friends at school. Now think about this, friend. What is that like? How many managers, how many bosses at work have tried to get as much work out of their workers as they can through manipulation of intimidation and fear and the wrong motivations and, and, and berating their employees. Now, you may need to stay in your job. You may need to stay under a boss like that. But you know what you can do? You can put him on notice. You can put her on notice and say, you know what? I come to work every day. I do my work heartily before the Lord. I'm going to work hard. But I'm not motivated by your intimidation and your guilt and all of the things that you're trying to do to manipulate me. That doesn't work with me. You can try that on someone else. It's not going to work with me. I live by grace. I don't do guilt. You can have those same conversations with your spouse. Teenagers. Think about what it's like for you at school every day. You're at an age now where you're beginning to find your identity apart from your family. And that's good. And so what do you do? You begin measuring yourself with your friends at school. And you know all the kinds of games that, that, that your friends are playing at school. Games of popularity. I'm in this group. I'm in that group. I identify with them. I don't identify with them. And, and, and we know that you know, when guys are bullies, they just beat each other up. When girls are bullies, you know what they do? They get their little clique and then they isolate them, another girl from them. And they say, don't talk to her today. And this girl's sitting there saying, why won't my friends won't talk to me today? All of those games... You don't need to play those games. You find your security in Christ and you walk with your head up confident into that high school and whether those friends like you or don't like you does not matter because that's not where you get your identity from. Amen? So let's live by grace and not legalism. Our application to this comes with another question. What if there was a church... (laughs) That was so safe that the worst of you could be known and you would be loved more rather than less by the telling of it. Think about that. Where do you go when you failed greatly and you haven't measured up? I don't know what it's been like for you, but for me and my family, new life has been that place for us. And we are so grateful for that. And I know that by the grace of God, the leadership of this church, it is our ultimate desire for this to be a safe place for you and for your friends. If you would hesitate to bring anyone in here from this community, I'd like to know why, so that we can fix it. Because this is a place of acceptance and a place of grace. Now lastly, we see another great contrast in the example of Hagar and Sarah. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These two women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. 
Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds with present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, break forth and cry aloud. O you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers like Isaac are children of promise but Just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And then this passage really finishes up with chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So this last contrast is a contrast between freedom and slavery. And Paul tells us that this is a word picture, is an allegory. Now, an allegory is a story of symbolic imagery or events which reveals a hidden moral or spiritual meaning that the author wishes to convey. That's what an allegory is. Now, God had promised Abraham that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But he's an old man, Sarah's an old woman, she's barren. And so she decides to make, take matters into her own hands. And so she tells Abraham to go into her handmaiden Hagar. And so he did. And Hagar had a child named Ishmael. And this was a work of the flesh. It was Sarah trying to make something happen that God had promised that would only come through the fulfillment of his promise in the right way. And then later... Sarah found out that she, God did fulfill his promise. And she was pregnant, even though she was way past her childbearing years. And so she gave birth to the son of promise, who is Isaac. So Isaac became the firstborn of the nation of Israel. Ishmael became the father of all the Arab nations. Isaac represented a life of receiving God's promises, a life of being born of the Spirit, a life of grace, a life of freedom. And then Hagar and her son Ishmael represented a life of slavery to legalism, performance-based acceptance, and works of the flesh. Now let me quickly say that there is a limit to this allegory. And listen well. God loved Hagar. Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, came to Hagar after she was banished in the desert with her son Ishmael, and they were about to thirst to death and starve to death. And Jesus comforted her. He ministered to her. He loved her. He gave her sustenance for living. And he promised her that her son would also be the father of a great nation. Don't ever forget that. Yes, God loves Israel. But God loves the Arab nations too. And I can tell you from experience and from observation that some of the most grateful, passionate, loving Christians I have ever seen were believers from Arab nations who had discovered the liberation of grace after they had been delivered from the legalism of Sharia law. And what they say to the missionaries, now revival is breaking out in these countries. And you know what they're telling the missionaries? Why did you wait so long to bring us this beautiful, glorious message of the gospel? But what we see here is a life, that a life of legalism is a life of slavery. 
We're enslaved to performance-based acceptance, trying to make things happen to, by manipulation and control and our own work of the flesh. It's so easy to set up our own list of our rules and standards by which then we measure our own worth and the worth of those around us. But then a life of grace is a life of learning how to trust God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And a life of grace is not a life of free-floating with no expectations. I want to clear up a misunderstanding. You know, some people think living by grace means, okay, God has no more expectations of me. I don't even have to have expectations of myself. No one should have any expectations of me. I'm just living by grace. No, no, no. God has all kinds of expectations of us. Jesus himself gave us over 300 commands in the Gospels. And the Apostle Paul explained this so beautifully. In another letter that he wrote to the Ephesians, he says, by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now it can't be any clearer than that, can it? But yet the very next verse, he says, for you are God's workmanship. That workmanship, poema, God's poetry in motion. You are God's workmanship created unto good works. God wants you to fill up your days with good works. There's all kinds of things that God is calling us to do. But here is the difference. Why are you doing it? That's the question. Why are you doing what you do? So look at this. If you're living a life of grace, then you will be doing everything you do out of the motivations of grace, which are faith, hope, and love. It'll be a motivation of faith and gratefulness in the past grace of God for you. It'll be out of the motivation of hope and expectation for the future grace of God that will be poured out on your behalf. And then it'll be out of a motivation of love for the present grace of God in your life. Your life is just going to be a big love letter with a P.S. on the end of it saying, thank you, Jesus, for everything you did for me. So I'll leave you with one final question. What if there was a life of total liberation that would give you the greatest freedom anyone can experience? Did you know that ultimate freedom is not the freedom to do what you want to do? But it is the freedom to be who you were created to be as a child of God who gets up and pours your life out every day in love to God and love to the people that He's brought into your life. That's a life of grace. I heard about a lady who was married to a man who was very critical, who was very demanding. He insisted, I'm the breadwinner, I'm going to go out and and, and, and he, every day when he would go off to work, he would give her a list of things that he wanted her to do while he was at work. And he would come home in the evening, and he would look at that list, and if she had fulfilled everything, or all the things that she fulfilled, he just simply checked them off. But the things that she didn't complete to his satisfaction, then he would, he would just berate her and criticize her and uh, try to do intimidation by guilt and, and fear and all of that. And it just was miserable. And she bore up under that. She felt trapped. And for years this went on. Finally, this man contracted a disease and he died. And quite honestly, she was relieved that he was dead. She was out from under that 
guilt and that performance-based acceptance. About a year later, she met this man who was a man who had, had experienced the love and grace of Jesus. And this man loved Jesus. He was exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and kindness and goodness. And all of this was being expressed and poured out on her as they were dating each other. And it was just like a different life for her. They finally got married. About a year later, she was folding some clothes. She pulled out a drawer and one of those old lists from her first husband was sitting there. It just immediately caused her throat to tighten up. She pulled out that list and began reading it. And all of a sudden, she began to weep because she realized she was doing everything on that list for her second husband. But it was all out of love and gratefulness for the experience of love and grace that they were experiencing together. Now that, my friend, is what it means to live by grace. So as we close, what side of these great contrasts are you going to come down on? The side of not knowing God or knowing God? On the side of selecting people of gospel of grace to speak into your life who will be true friends like Paul was? Or enemies who are going to keep you under the bondage of performance-based acceptance like the Judaizers did. On the side of slavery to your own performance or on the side of freedom that can only, that can only be given through as you trust God to work in you and through you as you work out of a motivation of gratefulness and faith in the past grace of God and hope and expectation for the future grace of God and love. For the present grace of God. And Paul said there are three things that remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Father, we thank you so much. For your mercy and grace. For your plan that has been poured out so freely upon you. For the love of God that has been poured out within our hearts. That our hearts have been flash flooded. With the love of God. And that we don't have to perform to earn your acceptance. Jesus performed for us 2,000 years ago. But we can live in that acceptance. And we can receive it. And live. And, and we can work hard and sacrifice. But we can do it out of a received life. Instead of trying to experience an achieved life. God, thank you for the freedom of grace. In your name.